0: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies. Is Hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive
1: digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years.
0: Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and The Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own. And actually, today they are those of Wisdom Tree. We're going to have a interesting special show. Um, my my mentor, my boss, Jonathan Steinberg, in the office. He's our CEO, founder of Wisdom Tree, alongside my first mentor, Professor Siegel. We're going to have a really interesting discussion talking you know about jano's background from war his days at wharton to his founding of wisdom tree and sort of really being a pioneer in asset management discovering self-indexing as a way for future asset management companies to sort of survive in an etf and beta driven world jano welcome back to wharton thanks for for showing up in our studio here thank you for having me um you know for people who are tuning in just learning about you and your background uh maybe talk about you know, you were here at Wharton on campus. You know, what what did it mean to
2: you, and and what did you you learn here? So, uh, first thing is, uh, it's a place of great importance importance to my family. So my father, Saul Steinberg, uh, part of Steinberg Dietrich, it changed his life. The opportunities that he discovered um, while he was here as a student, and that's why he always was so vigorous to give back and you know, and it really shaped a lot of our conversations and the family just has such a warm feeling for the university. As a undergrad, I ha- had an un- uh, a summer internship at Bear Stearns in mergers and acquisitions and I was able to parlay that summer internship. I pitched an idea back in 1986, the breakup of Xerox. Uh, they had this big insurance company that was unprofitable and I thought that that would create a lot of value and. They hired me full time, and I've never graduated. I did a two year uh, stint as an analyst m a M and A, and I parlayed that into buying a financial media company, which eventually led to Wisdom Tree.
0: Yeah, so you followed business from growing up with with your with your background. Any you remember the first time you discovered investing or just thinking about the markets?
2: I mean, we used to talk about um, the markets and business and what made a great business from forever my dad was um, instantly successful as a young man he had uh, was assigned a paper at Wharton to write why will IBM fail and instead he wrote a paper on why it will succeed but it led to him creating uh, really the computer leasing industry and so and then he went used it to go public um, instantly as a very young man like 25 years old so I my dreams were always about uh, running a public financial service company. And so really since I was like seven or eight years old, I interned in the investment department of the insurance company. I mean, really, it's a forever thing for me.
0: And so going from publishing ma- a magazine to Wisdom Tree, how, what was that like? How did you go from being a publisher, doing stock research to funding a asset management company?
2: So my desire was to... Well, let me step back. One of the things that my dad did that was really the most, one of the most influential for me before him, there was no central database for SEC filings. He thought that that was a mistake, so he went to the SEC and he pitched what would become disclosure, really an institutional service to get. SEC filings. So I was always very interested in financial information. Um, So when I started as financial media, it was really to do unbiased, independent research for the masses. And Professor Siegel actually was a columnist for many, many years in the magazine, and that was really a great honor for us. But editorially, I discovered um, ETFs, in 1999 when the structure itself only had 40 billion dollars it was a story on the qqqs during the dot com bub or boom but at, but the structure having no legacy issues Um, I was able to see that this is in the best interest of my readers, liquid, transparent, and tax efficient. It is a better wrapper for your investments. And my dream then was to be the next McGraw-Hill, the next value line, build an index, wrap it in the ETF structure. And I thought if you built a better index, you might be able to offer a better investing experience than Vanguard. That was my dream.
0: Professor Siegel, I remember you being an author for that magazine. My very first project when I first started working with Professor Siegel. was he had a website, jeremysegal.com, and his first assignment was format all these PDFs into something you can put on my website. Uh-huh. And so I remember reading everything he wrote, and the individual investor articles were there. What was what was it like for you meeting Jono, working with him? When did you first meet, meet Jono?
1: Well, I mean, I, you know, there were various events and, and uh, at Wharton honoring his his dad that he showed up at and we met. But the serious, uh, you know, uh, event was, uh, you know, 2004, 2003. Um, you know, O called me and, and basically said, uh, Professor Sigel, uh, we, got, we got an idea for an index that uh, we think outperforms the straight capitalization-weighted. And this is, you know, right after the dot-com bust. And I was getting disenchanted with capitalization-weighted indices And I said, you know, what do you have in mind? And you talked about fundamentally weighted indexes uh, that are not uh, indexed just to to the market value, but to to real variables such as earnings and dividends. And, uh, of course, uh, Jeremy Jeremy Schwartz was uh, one of my star students and my research assistant. I said, Jeremy, let's take a look at these. And we tested them up and down. And I said, wow. Uh, uh, and every single historical study we did, they just outperformed the the, the cap weighted. And uh, Jono asked me, "Would I want to be an advisor for this firm?" And I had never before. I mean, I got a lot of overtures for lots of firms, but once I saw these results, and uh, and Jono had that insight into what how big ETFs were going to be, because it was this was not going to be a, a standard mutual fund. It was going to be an ETF.
0: I said, "Yeah, I'm with you." So, John, how was what was it like trying to get people to buy into this idea? You had, you know, you were looking at ETFs early on. You were looking at these new forms of indexing, but people didn't want to
2: really get behind it. Well, so you asked about how do you transition from media to um, asset management? Well, first, it was hard because I was a public company, and this is a hard transition. So, I actually went from NASDAQ to. The pink sheets i delisted i sold my media assets after the dot-com boom uh, into the bubble i didn't get enough value i needed to raise more money so the first man that i met that really was instrumental was michael steinhardt uh, i think another wharton grad yes. um who yes. one of the world's greatest investors he wanted to get behind this and it was really his idea, let's show Professor Siegel this IP to see if it has value. And usually, so that was a hard transition. Um, me and a very small group of individuals, my uh, my brother Rain and Luciano Circusano, who's still at Wisdom Tree, our chief investment strategist, we really created the IP. And um, when, so when we had it ourselves, we're trading at $300,000 as public company, but When, and usually when you get down to when it's so, you're so desperate, usually you have to make sacrifices, but I was able to parlay. Professor Siegel's endorsement and Michael Steinhardt's involvement and interest in being my lead investor—that we were able to bring in Jim Robinson, the former CEO of American Express—and the three of them came together and invested in Wisdom Tree. And the moment that they touched our IP, it went from being worth three hundred thousand dollars. They collectively put in nine million dollars, and we now have a magical one hundred and twenty-five million dollar market cap. Now, when I we, remember
0: it cl- opening up around tw- fifty cents, and then. Closed hour a quarter, wasn't it? So we actually
2: day? went up 38,000% uh, in a day. so <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty big uh, move. It was a big day. If you haven't done 38,000% in a day, you're not a man. Um, but when you say, How did we sell this? We started with television commercials with Professor Siegel and uh, Michael Steinhardt, the Maverick and the professor. They came together and spoke about this new way to invest. And we had really almost instant success right out of the gate from June 16th, 2006, when we launched our first 20 funds in a day, right up until the financial crisis. I mean, we were really asset gathering, and so it was a very exciting time.
0: Yeah. Now, it was also, you launched right into the financial crisis, so if you launch a new asset management firm, and within two years, you get
2: I had one. uh, So I've been an entrepreneur a long time and I have been self-funding or, you know, really hustling um, as a small entrepreneur. I mean, when I went public, it was three common, three warrants, and we netted three and a half million dollars. So really, I understood the value of a financing. So before the financial crisis into 2000, late 2006, six months after we launched, I, even th- even though we had just launched the firm, I, hadn't ha- I didn't have enough capital. I knew I needed to raise more money. And the stock soared, but I'm on the pink sheet. So we, we went up on a, on, a, on a billion dollars, a billion and a half dollars of assets. We were trading at uh, $12 a share. And I sold stock, I did a financing, $57 million, led by AIG. But I priced it at $3 a share. So it was a massive discount to the public, and a lot of people criticized me. But at three dollars a share, it was thirty-four percent of AUM—an incredible valuation—and mm-hmm. that fifty-seven million allowed us to weather the financial crisis with a lot of elegance and grace. And we, you know, it, that's how we survived.
0: Yeah, like you—you you, you didn't go small. You—you you decided it was a strategy to go big or, or go home. In, in a large respect, how do you see that comparing to? a lot of other people in
2: in the ETF business today. Most, I would say almost all firms, not BGI, which created iShares, but almost all firms have underinvested, invested invested against the opportunity. There's a cynicism in Wall Street and they they really fought liquidity, transparency, and tax efficiency. And though in their hearts, in their quiet moments, of course it makes for a better structure, a better investing experience. And um, so we never did. And we just always use the maximum amount of our income statement and balance sheet to go after the opportunity. And today, you know, we manage $50 billion. And when we close on this acquisition that we announced, um, at the end of last year to buy another 18 billion of commodity based ETFs in Europe, we'll have about 68 billion and we are the largest independent and only publicly traded pure play ETF firm in the world.
0: Let me just reintroduce our guests here. We're talking with Jonathan Steinberg, CEO of Wisdom Tree, Professor Jeremy Siegel in the studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Um, Professor Siegel, did you when when you first heard of this idea of fundamentally weighted, do you think you would get to fifty billion in assets ten oh. years later? Oh wow, uh,
1: no way! And I, and I'll tell you, um, the way John o led us through. I mean, the financial crisis was the worst downturn and stock market decline since the Great Depression. And it hit the financial stocks more than anything else. And uh, Jono, boy, kept it together. We, you know, a lot of us are saying, "God, is this going to make it or not?" And uh, he saw it. He saw the future, and and stayed with it. And I, I think that uh, that just instilled confidence in so so many people. And then finally, when we bottomed out and turned around and saw that assets going up, and um, it was, you know, one thing. Jono is really into transparency. I mean, our cards are all on the table. Uh, You know, we had one of the lowest, uh, I mean, actually non-indexed, we did have the lowest cost structure um, uh, for uh, what we now call smart beta ETFs. Um, uh, I I remember once a a competitor, uh, I won't mention names, said, you know, Jeremy, you could be charging more, a little more for your, <laughs> your service. I said, no, this is, we want to give value to our customers, to the advisors, ultimately. Um, you know, before I got disenchanted with pure market weighted, I was really a booster of Vanguard, and of course, you know, the, the cheapest around. And I know John, when he first said, Jeremy, you want to work, I said, well, are we going to keep our, our fees low? He said, yes, and we did. And we were just—I uh, thought this was just such a great service. Um, we could have squeezed more out, perhaps, but we wanted to be the—you know—the—the the, the small, smart alternative to to Vanguard still diversification but in a smarter way and right. that was fantastic
0: I know if I asked you
2: if you thought you'd be 50 billion you would say you did <laughs> more well we we are uh, we're playing for more than that and um, and it's, it's just, it is incredibly exciting I mean I will say that I remember that we had this Sunday phone call um, Michael Steinhardt and myself Professor Siegel who is going to discuss the back test that the two of you did, how you analyzed the work that Luciano and I did with Michael Steinhardt. And at the time we were just so desperate. We had like $500 in the bank. I was personally bankrupt and no one had said a nice word. Michael Steinhardt wanted to do this, but only Professor Siegel. He instantly grasped me and said, Michael, I think this is a, like the best approach to indexing I'd ever seen. It was, I was so stunned. No one had said a nice word to us in like 24 months. And it was just magic from that moment on. And then we got to meet you, Jeremy Schwartz. There and you go. it was, uh, what a, it was a beautiful thing. Um, now, the,
0: the, the idea, we talked about trying to provide very low fees, a lot of people talk about ETFs or this race to the bottom. How do you think about the fees? Is there a fee war ETFs? And how do you, how do you think
2: you're positioned? So there is, um, certainly fees have come down, um, and historically fees should come down. There has been a lot of uh, um, waste in in the structure of asset management. Um, and, and in asset management, fees make an incredible difference. The only number that matters is your after-fee, after-tax return. And in fact, um, we're priced in a way that much of our, a majority of our indexes with 10-year track records or more are delivering better after-fee returns than the benchmark cap-weighted indexes, meaning the after-fee returns of the funds are beating the uh, no-fee indexes. So even Vanguard charges something. So we're okay there, Um, but we're not immune to it. And so it, ta- it depends upon the vintage of when you've launched the fund. So we launch funds today that are cheaper than if we had launched them in 2006. But if you've established the fund in the marketplace, it can hold its, uh, its fee structure as long as you're delivering value.
0: And what about all these new entrants to the to the
2: ETF e- ecosystem
0: is it to this worry you that you get big firms like Franklin entering to the ETF market
2: So when we launched the three of us launched in June of 2006 we launched into iShares owned by BGI they were the world's largest asset manager State Street, who launched the first ETF, was the second largest asset manager. And Vanguard, the pioneer of indexing, was the third largest asset manager on earth. So when we launched, we were going up against the best of the best always. Our business model was how to thrive in a Vanguard world. So when I do I stay up when I, now that Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or Franklin have come? No, not at all. We have actually educated them because we are a public company. We have brought them into the market. We have created our own competition. And for six or seven years or eight years, I've known we've been educating our competition. So what's left is better execution. And then I depend on men like you to make us better. So we have an incredible culture at Wisdom Tree. So we probably have the most senior team in the industry. And one, not just that individually, we've been working there the longest, but collectively we've been working together the longest. So we can we trust each other, and we can do more on less than almost any firm in the world. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I mean,
1: just absolutely. I mean, you know, you should crow about the fact we've won the best firm to work with uh, award. What two years uh, in a row? I mean, that's uh, of 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 medium sized firms. Wow, uh, and 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 that's what retains the best people. And you're right in the, in this world where people just shuffle around one to another. You know, you've been able to maintain that core and that works together so well and. Produce and produces results. I
0: was just talking to somebody for somebody I was catching up with recently, and and he was looking for another job. And I told him, I've been there for 13 years. I've got colleagues who've been there for 10 years, 12 years. People who've been, you know, the big percentage of people, they're like, wow, people really do that? They stay at a firm? What do you think is a secret, John, onto the culture? What have you tried to instill? Because a lot of it comes from you and from the top-down, I think, leadership. But what do you instill culture-wise to keep that um,
2: mentality first thing is if I had to generalize in the the biggest generalization would be we hire only happy people so people who are happy comfortable in their own skin they're just more attractive they people want to be with them so if you fill an office filled with people who are in their own quiet moments they take a happy comfortable breath It's just, it's invigorating, and so, and it's infectious, and it makes other people around them better. That plus an integrity that we will always do the right thing, even under adversity. Never do the wrong thing, there's never an excuse for it, and then they all have to, so, and then you have to grow. Grow individually and collectively, and create opportunities for the superstars, the young people who, as they continue to grow, you gotta grow as an organization so you can create opportunities for them. But it's not magic, but we actually like each other. We want to be there. And we also believe in our mission, delivering the best after few returns in the world.
0: You can see the passion is part of where it starts at the top. Um, you talk, one of the things I think is unique, talking to some of my colleagues in, around the industry, you, you instituted a tenure sabbatical program. So what, what made you do the 10-year the sabbatical,
2: and where did you go on yours? So um, after 10 years of Wisdom Tree, you get a two month paid sabbatical. Um, And one of the reasons why I did this was, I have a great starting lineup, um, but we don't have the bench. And so I need to make sure that I don't run you to death. You need to have moments with your families and step away and so you can recharge yourself. And so it was a philosophy, but really, for me i wanted to win as a business person in a complete way i wanted my shareholders my customers and my employees all of them to have the best experience possible winning for my shareholders alone at the expense of my customers or my employees does not satisfy me i want to enjoy what i do i want so i actually enjoy coming to work and seeing these people that I've been together with, and some of, the, and we always we promote from within, but we also bring in new blood, talented people who could thrive in it. My, um, so I'm coming on my third uh, sabbatical, but I actually haven't had. They keep interrupting me. So I haven't I actually had that. a good solid month off that I, but I'm going to take one soon. Oh,
0: that's good. Yeah. We're talking with Jonathan Steinberg, CEO of Wisdom Tree Investments. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We have Professor Jeremy Siegel here in our Warren studio. We're going to take a quick break, but after the break, we'll continue the conversation with Jonathan Steinberg. Welcome back to Behind the Markets and Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host Jeremy Schwartz here in my Wharton studio with Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, as well as Jonathan Steinberg, the CEO of Wisdom Tree Investments, also a registered representative for Side Fund Services. And we're gonna be talking with Jono really about what got him to found Wisdom Tree, some of the success he has, and really the future for Wisdom Tree and what it's investing in. Uh, right before the break, we we're talking really about how the culture he's ingrained has really made it recognized as one of the best places to, to work by P&I for three years in a row. Professor Siegel, we talked about the sabbatical program, and, and you were just mentioning some of the roots of sabbaticals. What, what's your experience? Right.
1: Well, it, it comes from the academic, um, and it's it's ingrained in virtually every institution. Every seven years, the Sabbath, so to, so to speak, um, you take a year off. You go to another university, or you take a year off to do research. You don't have to do teaching, but it is a renewing Uh, system, you get exposed to different ideas, Uh, you reflect on what you've done before, and uh I mean, this is really you're you're applying those great insights in in business to what has you know been a tradition uh, tradition for really centuries if you go back uh, uh, in the academic world, but almost rarely uh, applied in in business.
0: Now, Professor, I've known you since two thousand and one, uh, and it's now what two thousand eighteen. Have you you haven't taken no, a sabbatical I, since I've <laughs> known you?
1: Actually, I've taken I I I. I I'm so tied here to the Philadelphia area, and uh, um, uh, with, my, yeah, with my wife working here and having her own practice here, uh, I've, I've taken time off from teaching. Um, and I do travel a lot of, uh, uh, to try to expose myself to the new ideas and, and talk to others as far as that's concerned. Yeah, I haven't gone away as much as uh, some of my others, but I, 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 I think there's a, a use for,
0: for, for, for both. Very good. So let me come back to some of the, the, the concepts of what got Wisdom Tree started, the original non-cap weighted approach. Uh, and Professor, a lot of the work, you know, I remember when you first wrote Stocks for Long Run in 94, and you kept giving a lot of just cap weight. People would call you up and say, what stock should I buy? What sector should I buy? Oh, I don't do that. I just say buy the market. But when I first met you, you were working on um, sort of looking at the top 20 stocks from 1950 and saying... You know, how did those compare versus market over time? You're getting worried about the bubbles. What you know in the future for investors was really all about how do you solve for bubbles. What got you really motivated it, down that path?
1: Well, it, it, it was interesting, and, and 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 you're right. I mean, I <laughs> uh, first, you know, stocks for the long run. First edition came out in '94, and second one '98, and early 2000. And I was I was really straight indexer. I, I, some people said I'm I was the the, the greatest unpaid Vanguard advocate in the United States, they said, "Boy, you read your book. They they should be paying you." Uh, but then, when the when the dot-com bubble came, and of course, I had a lot of straight cap-weighted indexed uh, funds, and I said, "This technology is crazy." You know, I I, I you know for the first time I, I began to write articles, and I read that famous op-ed article in March of 2000. Happened to hit it right at the peak about the big cap tech stocks are a sucker's bet which got me an unbelievable uh, avalanche of critical <laughs> emails. Uh, but I, I said, you know, I like the rest of the market is fine. It was selling at 20 PE and the uh, the tech sector was 90. I don't want the tech sector. Well, is there some better way to do that? Um, and, um, you know, we were starting the book, The Future for Investors and looking at whether low PE stocks high dividend yield stocks did better. We were dividing these long histories into quintiles, the top 20% next 2020. And when we did that analysis on a risk return basis, the low PE stocks, the uh, high dividend stocks uh, just did better. And what I really liked when, when John called me up and talked about uh, you know, fundamentally weighted indexing in the sense that we, we, we get every, everything a weight. If you pay a penny a dividend, you get a little bit in there. I liked the fact that it was smooth from the beginning. There wasn't, oh, are you a growth or are you a value? And what is the criterion for going into one or another? We never had to make that judgment. It was all absolutely weighted and absolutely smooth. And that just, uh, I mean, that sort of simplicity just attracted me and absolutely fit in with the results that uh, you know you and I were finding when we were dividing up the stock's uh, growth in value. And um, so in a way, it was like, hey, this is a way to implement it in an indexing way, the most diversified way, and still getting the better returns.
0: Yeah, I remember the, the final chapter of the book, DIV directives, uh, very much right in line. D for high dividends, value for low PE. I, yeah. for international. international, I mean, it was, you could see where you have a dividend and, earnings and, family and, and, of and, and right
1: at the beginning, I mean, I, I think one of the great things about the Wisdom Tree and, and John's vision, we were we were devoted to international. I mean, we were we were global. Uh, I mean, there were a few others, but boy, we we, we knew that you're, you're dealing with a global capital market here, and it's just going to become more and more global, and you, you can't just stay U.S. oriented.
0: John, what was it like? You launched 20 funds in a day, and... You had four US, uh, six U.S. and 14 international, and with some of the first international small caps, Japan small caps, Europe small caps. How, what was it like to discover those asset classes before really any other ETF?
2: Now, partly it was pure business. So um, even though we were relatively early in the life of the ETF industry, so those six uh, domestic funds, there were plenty, four or 500 domestic ETFs at that time. When you look internationally, there was only um, iShares, really based on the MSCI indexes. So Wisdom Tree, you know, we pioneered the model of self-indexing. So we were able to innovate in the indexing space. We're both the index provider and the asset manager. So we introduced size cuts into international ETF investing. Um, and so those early, our greatest success probably was a fund today that's like a $2 billion fund, DLS, International Small Caps. It took in a fast $500 million, but they weren't necessarily buying it because it was fundamentally weighted. It was just the only way that they could buy international small cap. It might've been they wanted the asset class or they just wanted completion into their EFA markets, but whatever it was, there was no competition. And so we launched so many first to markets. And so that was a business decision. And the, the India fund,
1: EPI, right?
2: That was the first India fund in the ETF format. When we launched that, it was yeah a Fast billion dollars. I mean, it was very exciting mm-hmm. um, and really gave energy for the first time to the earnings weighted family because right. dividends aren't really paid in um, uh, in India. But one thing, when we you know cycles, they run in long cycles. The other thing that I really knew was when we launched it in two thousand and six. Japan had been out of favor and it was really one of the original bubbles in equities that created fundamental weighting When Japan had a higher market cap than the US in the late 80s It was a 40 50 percent weight percent weight in EFA. So people were playing with weighting schemes way back then to lower the weight of Japan But when we launched our mark funds we launched the second third and fourth dividend weighted not dividend weighted Japan exposures in ETFs and so Today we have one of the most successful funds ever launched, DXJ, which really you, Jeremy Schwartz, helped repurpose our broad-based Japan fund to add a uh, exporter tilt and a currency hedge. And so in 2013, after Abe got elected, we took 88 cents of every dollar that went into Japan because nobody had any Japan funds. We were a one of a very small number. So a lot of fortuitous moments.
0: Very good, and just to refrain, we're supposed to keep away from individual funds on, on the program. We're not
2: recommending the, it, we're just talking about, <laughs> about a success of yours. I appreciate that. Um,
0: so the in terms of, you know, a lot of people have said over the years we become, you know, you're concentrated, remember? And even currency hedging, I, mean, I remember thinking of why we should go currency hedge was two thirds of the assets were tied to down dollar play. And, you know, you had those international small caps and broad international. What do you say to the critics who say you're just
2: certainly, you know, your assets are very concentrated? Um, well, one, we are less concentrated than we were because we've had growth in other areas and our currency hedging has lost some value. But when we announce the uh, when we close on our acquisition of this commodity-based ETF sponsor in Europe, we'll be the second most diverse ETF firm in the world after iShares, and forty percent of our shareholders in the funds will exist outside the United States. So um, I, I think it's. Um, uh, at this stage, it's really not an accurate description of the firm. But I will say about um, concentrations: no firm, no asset manager gets large without large funds, and so everybody has their moments of concentration.
1: I, I'd like to. I just like to add about the. Uh, I think the genius of of these currency heads uh, funds, um, you know, we we in finance talk about risk risk and return a lot. And uh, so many people invest internationally, they don't realize that when they put, a, put the money in foreign stock markets, not only are they putting them in the foreign market, they're also taking a currency risk. And to immunize you against that currency risk can be a very powerful incentive. You know, people say, oh, I want to put it in the Nikkei or, or uh, one of the major foreign indices. And they, hit, they read in the newspaper, oh, that Nikkei hit an all-time high. They look at their fund. Well, why didn't my fund hit it? Oh, well, because the yen went down. I mean, they, they, they don't they, – it's not even what they intended to do. And there's been so much confusion. And I think we, we were the first one to really say, hey, let's take that currency risk out of that international investing. Um, and uh, uh, it, it certainly
0: hit a receptive chord. We have a, a real branding problem on this one, I think, is if you can't go back and rewrite history. So if you actually call them international double decker funds, I think very few people would buy the international double decker. But that is what International unhedged strategies are it's their stocks plus stocks plus currency But now you call it hedged and so people all of a sudden think they're more exotic uh, But it's really the double-decker that is the more exotic strategy and it's we have we have education to keep working on that um, so, so John, in terms of going after ETF securities the acquisition certainly makes you more diversified and um, any other things as you think about how you think about acrogen generally? Is there anything that, how, why it was attractive from just a diversification standpoint as well as geographies?
2: Well, uh, Europe is the second largest um, ETF market in the world by a lot after the United States. Almost like 90% of the ETF assets are held in the United States and Europe combined. Um, and if you want to keep your option open to be an independent public company, The cost of independence is a vibrant usit structure, so you can talk to the global investor. And so now we will have, after the close of this transaction, a hundred million dollar highly profitable European operation. So we, it, 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 I'm excited to do it. I mean, it's um, it was the right thing to do from both a um, building up our proprietary scale European business, diversify our business. Um, in many, so many ways, it just worked for everything that we were trying to do. Um, our, the philosophies of the firms um, are very similar. They were beta, If I always say about beta, if you're gonna do beta, you have to be first. And uh, the founder of ETF Securities created the first gold funds, gold traded products in the world, predates um, GLD in the States by five years. Um, And so we have a lot of commodities beyond just gold that has virtually no competition in Europe. And so it's an exciting uh, diversifier for the firm. And again, I'm trying to scale up and invest uh, to take full advantage of the opportunity. And after that, we're also spending a lot of energy around uh, technology, to enhance the investing experience. And everything that we, the common theme for us is, how do you enhance the investing experience for the advisor, for the end customer? That's our guidepost.
0: Yeah, so I was gonna actually, you led me right to where I was gonna go next, was what you're, you sort of have a FinTech division in a way, you're sort of investing a lot in technology. Maybe talk about how you're thinking about the investment levels
2: there, what is the sort of strategy of how you're going after to help serve, serve advisors? so the investing experience in general is challenged and most people do not there there are two types of people in the markets there are the self-directed online investor who are passionate about investing like a sports fan they just love it but the vast majority of people talking to their advisor is like going to the dentist they don't enjoy it they do it because they have to this experience we we as an industry have to bring trust back into the market after 2008 Products have evolved and people get comfortable, but like any other industry, the ETF is just a technology. Nobody still uses a payphone, they use their smartphone. Mutual funds are the payphone of the asset management industry. They're tax inefficient, they're less liquid, less transparent. You always have to invest in it. Around helping the advisor, we've invested in something called Advisor Engine, which we have an option to buy the whole thing in January of 2008. But it's a digital wealth platform to digitize the advisor's business from prospecting to billing, and our great interest in it is to be the, the model portfolio provider to the advisors if they want it, but that's one of the areas. Tools to empower the advisor to help their customers. That's really, the, our vision for technology. And again, I'm spending the maximum amount of my income statement and balance sheet to be able to uh, execute this dream. Um, and I think we have just the resources to be able to do this. Let me just reintroduce our
0: guest here. We have Jonathan Steinberg, CEO of Wisdom Tree, Professor Siegel. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, I'm, you know one of the people you brought in to help you know, from Wisdom Tree's lead technology, Jarrett Lillian, do you want to talk a little bit about your history with Jarrett? What would what you see Jarrett doing for
2: for you? So I met Jarrett Lillian um, when I was a media company, calling on him for advertising. He was the president of E-Trade, a tremendously elegant guy, very a strong marketer, a very strong technology background. And when uh, the financial crisis hit, E-Trade got uh, caught up in it as well. And at that time, I brought uh, Jared on as a director of the public company. And he has been on our board for eight years on both the comp and the uh, audit committees and was a terrific director. But I had always felt that he was being underutilized. And as we made this push into technologies, um, at the end of last year, I brought him on to be director of emerging technologies really outward facing technologies and so he dropped off the public company board joined the executive management team and is part of my philosophy of great people happy people really you know reinvigorating the organization with new blood and and quite frankly if I have an issue it was my i have to make sure that the management team expands with the ambitions, I've added a lot of complexity over the last two and three years in the organization, and so he's part of the solution of the future for this future. Very good,
0: Professor Siegel. You you heard him say like going to the dentist is what financial advisor experiences are are like. Um, anything you see talking, you talk to a lot of yeah. advisors out there. Any anything you'd like to comment on? Yeah,
1: I, and I mean, uh, even I even though i saw the advantages of etfs over the standard mutual fund i never believed they would explode the way they had and uh i actually became a defender of a lot of thing people think that you know they can worsen a crisis some people question well how can they be more li- liquid than the undervalu uh, un- underlying stocks and the truth is they can be and and should be in many cases and even you know, because I I talk with my colleagues at lunch about a lot of these issues, and and they agree uh, that that the the theory of ETFs is completely sound, and uh, they can be more liquid than the underlying asset because you're you're basically um, uh, combining uh, risks and diversifying risks so you could you could definitely i mean just look at spiders which are 500 stocks now they're pretty active but they have you know the spider has a much lower bid-ask spread than any of the individual stocks that comprise it so even if you have commodity etfs or whatever it is or high yield etfs it can uh, be uh, more liquid and that is uh, something that just makes the market more efficient um uh, lowers liquidity costs and uh, I mean you know I think that's uh, th- that's the big goal. I mean it's hard to believe uh, John would probably remembers that and he was probably you know when, when the standard advisors you know was a 3% wrap fee on an account and then they were using mutual funds that were charging one and two on top of that now you know back in the days when you had 15 and 20 percent inflation and that was the interest rate then maybe that doesn't sound so bad but you know, in in today's world, um, you know, with the interest rates what they are, stocks have done well, but you know, future returns are not going to be as high as a lot of those others, and every uh, every basis point uh, is really going to count, and it really compounds at the end. So, I mean, th- these these are the ideal mechanisms for uh, for long run accumulations,
2: and in you know, financial services versus other industries, like people are passionate about their iPhone and so they will sleep overnight at the Apple store to get the new innovation. And that passion from the consumer helps drive innovation and change. But because people are not passionate about financial services, the financial service industry was not forced to change. And so it's been a very, very slow adoption for such a revolutionary new technology. And in that technology, I'm talking about the ETF wrapper. And it's just a wrapper, but it's competing against the mutual fund and the hedge fund wrapper. And those are just wrappers. The hedge fund is not an asset class. It's a fee structure. Bonds, stocks, commodities, those are asset classes. And so, you know, this is just a better way to hold your asset classes, and it's for sure. You, you often
0: say the rich people get the worst advice. I've, I've heard you say that. Any, I'm gonna follow up on that comment.
2: Uh, They can pay the highest fees. They all want to hang out with uh, the billionaire uh, general partner of a hedge fund. Um, But, you know, really, a few hedge funds truly deliver better after-fee returns. They. uh, The truth is... Yeah, Warren Buffett won his bet, right? Yes, he did.
1: Outperformed the hedge fund over the last 10 years.
2: Now, our chairman, Michael Steinhardt, 29 years delivered 24 and a half percent after fees. So he is a great investor and he was worthy of his one in 20. But today there are 12,000 hedge funds, 10,000 mutual funds, and 2,400 ETFs. There cannot be, you know, 12,000 managers who are deserved two and 20. Oh, absolutely.
1: And that's why they're underperforming. Um, because, way, I mean, there are a few stars and they uh, but everyone got into business. It seemed like, uh, you know, easy money and, uh, that's why Buffett won is better
0: no win is better over the next 10 years. I, I, I think uh, on that score. So John, without getting into maybe specific tickers, but is there anything you know that you've got a lot of people know your your blockbusters, you know s- success stories. Anything you think that you've done a lot of work on or strategies that we've worked on that you're really excited about from a from a concept level? that people may not know about or or haven't recognized yet?
2: So we've uh, been doing a lot of work in two different asset classes. One would be fixed income, and there had not been, um, so cap-weighted fixed income is even less attractive than cap-weighted equities. You know, you're investing in the most, uh, the largest issuers, the most indebted. So that, so there hasn't been a lot of innovation in uh, fixed income, and we've done a lot, and we have a suite of fixed income that is really starting to get uh, traction. The other area, we're moving away from fundamental, but we're moving into incredibly sophisticated indexes. So in the liquid alt space, we've done some incredibly attractive things, really competing with the hedge funds, but in a liquid low fee uh, uh, approach. And then we're also doing something which I know you're very excited about, which is, fully transparent, true active in the ETF format. And I think that's going to be even better in many ways, well executed for the end consumer.
0: Just being able to apply some discretion and not doing the not non-transparent active, which is another topic that a lot of people think that you have to go active, we've got to hide, we've got to go back to the dark. Like Professor Eagle said, you're all about transparency. Maybe comment on that, that non-transparent approach that a lot
2: of people think is, or a lot of active managers are trying to hide behind. Um again, it's the financial service industry, and in any other industry, you'd be laughed out of the room. So the innovation of some of these active firms are to take the innovation out of the ETFs, to take transparency out of the ETFs. And I will tell you that not, in my 13, 14 years calling on customers, I have never met a customer who said, take the transparency out of my ETF. I think it is a, um, it will be a, if they will never be, very commercially successful it's really done from the active traditional mutual fund uh firm's perspective to protect their existing book of business i don't i'm not very optimistic about it
0: yeah and i'm excited because you said as you said like a lot of it's it's a lot of semantics in what you call these things but a lot of our indexes is trying to add value over the market so if you could try to add value over the market and have a little bit more discretion at times when there's Risks you see building up with any specific strategy, or you're just being able to have a little bit more control over the portfolios that come out from your rules. I think that that can add value. So I'm I'm looking forward to working on smart, sophisticated versions of that. Um, maybe we could talk. We got about eight minutes left. Uh, maybe we could talk some personal lessons, things you've learned in life. Um, we talked a lot about the company and, and different things you're focused on. Um, I've got a quote I, I have, and we haven't talked about this gentleman yet. Arthur Levitt once said, "You're indomitable in terms of." Of your determination and unwillingness to accept no for an answer, um, anything that anything you'd point to in your life that that helped you develop this uh, this persistence.
2: So, uh, we're here at Wharton, um, this important place to my for my father. So I was always. I was never interested in my father's wealth. What I was interested in is his confidence and his passion. You guys on the radio, you can't see me, but he would wake up in the morning, his hands in the air, wake up, wake up, it's a new day. And that is what I wanted. What I had witnessed, my dad was so successful so young, and all of his peers were a generation older, the uh, Larry Tishes of the world, incredible men, but he had such a a passion for life. Money alone, success alone, it's not necessarily true happiness. And so, really, my strength comes from searching for the truth, inner truth, my own happiness. And when you look at um, the very wealthy, the children of the very wealthy, from the outside it looks like they have everything, they should be happy. But if you're not, then then you know that alone isn't the answer. Finding your true passions, whatever it might be, and pursuing them, it's really been what gives me my strength and so i love what i do i enjoy competing with vanguard and blackrock these incredibly large firms i find it incredibly creative to be to bring out the best in my co-workers to create new products to market whatever it is but that this is what i enjoy doing and it's why you know and i and i wanted to do this and i know that failure is a possibility but overcoming adversity is really the key to long-term success.
0: Yeah, when it, you can see it oozes out of you, right? And you, I think that's why people love work with you. And Professor Siegel, I think the same can be said of people why taking your class. When you do what you love I and love you, can, it. you can't do anything else. It... I know. I mean, I you know, I've been invited to, to be on Wall Street
1: and be in the financial world. Obviously, more money, but... I've always turned it down I I, I to me teaching is such uh, it's such a treat um, and such an honor and of course I'm blessed with just, such wonderful students here at Wharton that it just invigorates me I mean and uh, to me uh, you know we were talking about uh, just before our show about you know Warren Buffett who um, uh, you know, now is 87 years old and he said I, I skip to work I love what I do and, and you can see, you know, here he is and Still, you know, makes as much sense as he always has, uh, and is right on top of things. And just what John was saying, you love what you do; that's what makes your life, and and that is what's fulfilling ultimately. So,
2: Professor Siegel has, for Wisdom Tree, gone into lots of different uh, advisory firms, wirehouse firms, and he talks about the markets. And one of the things that he makes the advisor and the financial institutions who are not they're not easy places to work. It's not filled with uh, joy and his enthusiasm and pride in the markets, it is infectious and the advisors feel better about what they do. And so you see it, I mean, it's the same thing. Professor Siegel brings that into investing and the advisors eat it up. They find he's like a, a, a shot of vitamins. <laughs> it makes them have better, a bigger step You know, when they go and talk to their own clients. It helps them to believe in what they're doing.
0: So when you, you talked about your your inner passion and, and what you really enjoy doing, what is do you think your your long run vision, long run goals for, for where you wanna be five, five, ten years from now? Um,
2: you know, I we're a public company, we're a widely held public company. I, I hope that we can remain an independent public company, but we always have to do the right thing. It's not about our independence isn't for sure um, but you know in the first 10 years of wisdom tree the etf industry in the united states had 2.2 or 2.3 trillion dollars of flow we took 2.3 percent of the flow the next 10 years in the united states starting from this year i would think would be easily Uh, five but probably closer to seven trillion dollars of flow and I think wisdom tree with our broader technology solutions and broader suite of funds competing on different asset classes like domestic fixed income I think we can take five percent of the industry flows so we have the opportunity to be hundreds of billions of dollars of assets under management. And I think that there is something that comes with scale that is self-fulfilling. Um, and so I'd like to play this out. And I think Wisdom Tree has the chance to be uh, one of the forever firms, but it's not guaranteed. We have to work very hard to accomplish that goal.
0: Uh, I'm working on it for you. I know you said if you get to five, you could get to 50. If I get to 50, I could get to 500. So I know we're on that path. Um, any, um, you know, maybe any, in the spirit of, of giving advice, um, any, maybe some of the best advice you were given that you'd want to share with uh, our, our listeners on here?
2: Always do the right thing and follow your passion. There is no excuse for doing the wrong thing. You're allowed to make a mistake, but, and I'm incredibly uh, fierce in um, being unforgiving in intentional, uh, bad behavior and create that culture, but always do the right thing and try to find your passions and follow your passions at all costs.
1: Yeah, I think ethical. I mean, I, I saw that in Jono right away. I mean, you, you do things right. Uh, in the toughest times, there's temptations to take shortcuts and to do one thing and the other. And, uh, you know, Wisdom Tree has never done that. And I think that, that, that that's the way it has to be.
0: A- any lessons from failures that led to your maybe later success
2: um I mean you know this has not been a, a an easy path I mean it's getting easier and easier but um my uh, my failures I mean I was um under capitalized so it, as a media company always struggling on capital so um, one of the, so that So I seized the day with that AIG financing that I described earlier. Um, That was one of the most important critical moments um, of the firm and it was from learning from that um, uh, failure of always being undercapitalized. But in general, I've just been a a student of uh, business from the very beginning and uh, you know reading books on dupont and lessons learned when they were making gunpowder in 1775 for the the american revolution and how you evolve we're always the issues are the same even though the times are different Um, you have to evolve your business, you have to have great people, lots of integrity. Things never change, it's always the same. Um, The thing is to remain hungry and to be self-aware. If you lose your hunger or you're deluding yourself, you really have to know that Um, and then who can you trust on your team? and where are their strengths. I am really a reader of people. So when you tell me that you have passion on a new product, I know to listen to you and on other disciplines within the firm, legal, controls, compliance, things like that. We really have to read the people and believe in the people around us. Um, it's just been an, its such a, an exciting time for us, and I hope you are enjoying it as much today as when we were first launching the firm.
0: Absolutely, I am. Um, and, Jono, it's easy to see why we believe in you. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming down to Wharton, Professor Siegel. Thank you. Uh, You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 111. Thank you to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on SiriusXM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.